So let's get started. Come to Colossians chapter 1. And as you turn to that, um, I, I would like to, before we get into the verses, give you some introductory material. But before we do that, let's pray and then we'll begin. Father, thank you for this privilege this evening to once again sit down, open up the Word of God, talk about what you've done for us, talk about your plan for us. Lord, please shift our attention now, all of our focus, into what you have preserved for the last 2,000 years. God, so that we today might know exactly what you desire of us. Please speak to our hearts tonight. Please fill me with your Spirit. Oh, God, I need it. Please help me. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, the book of Colossians. Let me just get a backup recorder started here. The book of Colossians is uh, one of Paul's prison epistles. And uh, you can see this in chapter 4, verse number 18. Paul says, remember my bonds. So he's writing this from, pri uh, from prison. Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and this one, uh, Colossians. These are the prison epistles. Now, I myself, I would include 2 Timothy as a prison epistle. Whenever I read commentaries, I rarely find people mentioning 2 Timothy as being written from prison. I don't see how it could be written from anywhere else. But uh, Paul was, he'd already had, he'd gone into the arena once. No man stood with him, so he was under arrest. I, I would consider it a prison epistle. But nevertheless, Colossians written from prison. And it appears that Paul never met the Colossian people. Uh, this will become evident as we go through the book, but especially in chapter 2, we're going to read some things that would indicate that. Uh, he did, however, Paul had messengers, fellow laborers, that were bringing messages back from the Colossian church. So he was aware of what was going on, and that's why he was able to deal with and write to them and deal with some of the issues that they might have been uh, coming up against. The, Colossian, the, the letter to the Colossians, you'll also find that Paul... There's really nothing in there where he directly rebukes them, which shows that he he's, hasn't been there, that he doesn't know. Like we've just studied Galatians over and over, Paul rebuked them. He knew them. He knew specifically what was going on. He knew how to address them more directly. Colossians speaks from a bit more of a general point of view, uh, and Paul explains so some, I want to say some very basic and fundamental things that any Christian, especially living at that day and age, would need to know. Because the word Laodicea appears in this epistle, in chapter 4, you find it in Colossians and you find it in Revelation 3. Now, I don't want to get deep into the allegorical look at Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven churches, but as most people understand it allegorically, we are living in the end times, which can also be referred to as the Laodicean period of the church age. So because Laodicea is mentioned in the book of Colossians, a lot of people think and, and teach Colossians uh, and believe that it applies very much today, maybe even more than some of the other epistles. The Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, right? So I believe any of, any of the Bible is going to be applicable. But it is true that there are some things in Colossians that will line up with what we are challenged with in these end times. But we'll see all that as we go through it. All right, uh, well, let's dive into chapter 1 and verse 1. 
you guys could uh, keep sending messages, I don't know, every 10 or 15 minutes, because I would like to see if, if this thing works. Last night, again, it, it dropped out about halfway, maybe a little over halfway. But uh, please feel free to uh, say amen or ask a question. Or if I forget to give the code and we're getting close to the end of the lesson, remind me of that uh, by sending a comment. I'd appreciate it. All right, chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. We would just say Timothy. Uh, he's introducing who is, who's writing and who is with him. Timothy's with him as they compose this letter. And there's one thing I want you to notice about this, this verse. It's a fairly straightforward introduction, but there's something that Paul adds in a lot of his introductions. He says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. That's the part I want you to notice. Paul could have, right, if you take that prepositional phrase out of the verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ, and Timothy, our brother, that would have worked perfectly for an introduction. Why mention by the will of God? Paul wants it to be abundantly clear he did not choose this path for his life. God is the one that called him to this. Paul is not trying to create his own religion so that he can create a following for himself. Now, once you invoke the name of God in this scenario. You say, God told me to do it. Now, there is a sense of accountability. Somebody says, God told me to do it. We can check that out. We can verify that claim. Take your Bible quickly and look at Titus chapter 1. Get Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. And you'll see the introduction there. A similar thing is said, and Paul elaborates on it a little bit. So somebody says, God called me. There, there are a couple things in Titus 1 and verse 1, two things that we can check them with. He says in, in this verse, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, which is another way of saying uh, the faith of saved people, New Testament biblical faith. Well, so if somebody says, God called me, we can open up the New Testament. This is the faith. This is what we believe as as Christians, and we can compare the story of their calling and what they think God call, has called them to do and compare that with what's been revealed in the Word of God so we can check them. And then it goes on to say, and the acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness. So he says, I'm called according to, and then list two things. The acknowledging of the truth, which is after godliness, if a man has been called by God to preach the truth, then that truth, that message that he's going to preach, if it's from God, it's going to lead to godliness. Godliness is another way to say like Godness. You're going to live, you're going to live like God. That is holy and clean and sanctified, righteous, and all of that. So you can look at the fruit of Paul's ministry and also verify: Is this man truly chosen by God? Again, I'll mention how ironic it is. We just looked at the verses last night. Do you remember? Matthew 7. If somebody claims to be a prophet, then we will know that by their fruits. If they're a false prophet, they're going to bring forth the wrong kind of fruit. It's not going to produce godly converts. They're gonna, uh, the converts that they might have will be twofold, more the child of hell than themselves. Remember, we studied that. 
So there are a couple ways. Once you invoke the name of God, you can verify and say, okay, if God's the one that did it, then everything should line up. All right, back to Colossians chapter 1 and verse 2. Forgive me, I just saw in my notes, I didn't give you the outline for this chapter. Chapter 1 breaks down into three parts. Verses 1 to 14, strengthening the saints. He is strengthening the saints. Verses 15 to 20, source of everything. We're going to look at how Christ created everything. The source, source of everything. And then the end part of the chapter, verses 21 to 29, sanctification of the body of Christ sanctification of the body of Christ. All right, so verse 2, To the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, again, part of Paul's normal openings. We've seen this in, in his other epistles. I will point out one thing from this verse. He says, To the saints and faithful brethren. Faithful brethren. You'll see it in this epistle. The word faithful will pop up a few more times. This is one of the virtues that catches Paul's attention. Not famous brethren, faithful brethren. I, and I can look over it on this side of my screen. I don't know if you can see it on yours. I think I've disabled it. I can see how many people are watching. It gives me a sense, right? I don't know exactly how many because there might be multiple people in one room watching the screen, so I'm not going to jump to any conclusions. But I do wonder how many people are staying faithful to sitting down at 6 o'clock on Wednesday evening to watch the lesson. I wonder how many people, because it's on YouTube, think I can do that later. But to actually stick to the schedule, to be faithful. You say it's such a small thing. What difference does it make? And I, I understand that it may be out of your control and you may not, uh, you know, some emergency, something happened that you can't be at the computer when you wanted to be. But I wonder how many people just figure, ah, it's just not convenient for me. Let me, let me work off my own schedule. So it's just a small thing, you know. It's, it's the same information. If I watch it at 6 o'clock or if I watch it the next morning, who cares? He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. As I mentioned a few weeks ago, or a few lessons ago, I, it's, I lose track of time now, part of attending Bible school is not just learning the information of the Bible, but learning how to discipline yourself. It's part of being faithful. Faithfulness, loyalty, it is an underrated virtue in the church these days. It is something that we... we we don't put a high enough price tag on that. The Bible says an unfaithful man, he's like a broken tooth or a foot out of joint. When you need him to be there, when you expect him to be strong, he gives, he gives out. He's not there for you. All right, that's enough preaching. Now verse number three. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Now what we get starting in verse three is Paul's prayer journal, or his prayer list. And he is going to tell the Colossians, first of all, why he's praying for them. What has drawn them to his attention? And then secondly, he's going to tell them what exactly he's praying about on their behalf. 
So the first part from verse 3 down to 8, we're going to see why he's praying for them. And then verse 9 to 14, what he's praying about. In verse uh, 4, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which ye have to all saints, to all the saints. So Paul received a message, probably from Epaphras, or there are a few other candidates that could have brought this message to Paul. But somebody told Paul what this congregation was busy doing. They were actively helping people, actively doing something with the message of the gospel. And not just going out and witnessing, but everything that, that the, the, the gospel should bring forth in a person's life. They were applying the death, burial, and resurrection. They were living according to the teachings of Jesus Christ. All of this was happening in Colossae. So Paul heard about that and he says, man, when I heard what God was doing, and how you guys were responding, I'm really praying for you. In verse 5, he, he goes on to say, For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now notice, let's get this, the flow of this. Verse 4, Since we heard of your faith and of your love to all the saints, for the hope. So why are they, why are they having such manifest faith in Christ? And why do they have such a manifest love for the saints? It is because of the hope, for the hope, because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, verse 6, which is come unto you as it is in all the world. So the, the message that the Colossians received is the same gospel preached everywhere. It doesn't matter that the Colossians might have had their own culture or something. Every culture, every people group gets the same message. And he says the reason that you guys have responded the way that you have is because you understand what God's plan is. You know about the hope that is laid up for you in heaven. You know that there's something waiting for you on the other side. So they understood this principle of laying up treasure in heaven, gold, silver, precious stones. They realized, they knew that they would be rewarded for their service to Christ. They were fully aware that Christ was worthy of, of this kind of service. Take your Bible. Let me show you a couple verses that go with this. 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. 1 Peter 1 and verse 4. All right, so Paul is talking about the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. Now, let me show you what is laid up for us in heaven. 1 Peter 1 and verse, can we read verse 3 and 4? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, you see the connection, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why are we certain of this hope? Why is it a lively hope? Why does it bring forth life and service and zeal and passion? Because Jesus rose from the dead. That's why we're so sure of it. Now, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. So something is waiting for us on the other side. It's been laid up. It is already there. It is in, incorruptible. It is undefiled. 
say, what is it? Now, this is where most people say these are the mansions that Jesus is preparing for us. I, I do agree that Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. We know that, yes? John 14. But I don't think that's what Peter's talking about. Look at 2 Corinthians 5, verse number 1, and I believe you'll see clearly what Paul and, in the other case, Peter is referring to. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 1. Paul writes here, For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, talking about the earthly body, human body, we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God, an house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So if this body falls apart, we have a new body that is already waiting for us in heaven. Keep reading. You'll see that it's referring to the body and not an actual building that you live inside of. Verse 2, For in this, in this body, we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven. You don't wear the, the bricks and mortar even or the gold. You wear that new body. Verse 3, If so, that being clothed, we shall not be found naked. So your soul comes with that. It will have that glorified body with it. Verse 4, For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we, should be un- we would be unclothed, so we don't just want to die, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. So we are looking forward to that day when the new body overtakes this sinful, broken-down body. And then we can stand in the presence of God perfected. All right, so come back to Colossians 1. And this tells me that whoever it was that went to preach to the Colossians first, it, it wasn't Paul, as best we can tell. Whoever it was, they went and explained A to Z everything that the Colossians needed to know about the gospel. They did not only preach the death, burial, and resurrection, but they said because of the death, burial, and resurrection, we now have access to this entire plan that God put together for us. So from reconciliation to rapture, the Colossians were aware of everything that God wanted to do. And because they were aware of it, it provoked them, it motivated them to believe God, have faith, and serve others. Now, back in verse 6, it says, "...which has come unto you," that is the truth of the gospel, "...as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit, as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth." This is one of the, I want to say, unique evidences for, for the, the gospel being true. Because everywhere you preach it, no matter if you go to the Far East, if you go to the West, if you go to the darkest jungle, it doesn't matter. When you preach the gospel and somebody begins to follow Christ, the same fruit can be shown, can be found in in all of these converts, no matter where they're from. So it doesn't matter the language, the skin color, the cultural background, doesn't matter the time period, right? You can read the history books from 500 AD, from 1000 AD, 1500, 19, you can read 20 years ago. What 
the change that Jesus made in Paul's life, in Timothy's life, is the same ones that I've seen in my life and the lives of hundreds of others that have, have obeyed the gospel, have believed it and applied it. And that's, that's an amazing thing to think about, that one thing can get everybody conformed, right? That one message can conform everybody to the image of Christ. You would think that cultural backgrounds would cause people to spin off different directions. Now, we still maintain some cultural differences, right? But the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, these things, when somebody becomes a true, genuine follower of Christ, those things are always manifest. So that's an interesting Interesting thing to think about. The message, no other message of any religion can bring forth that kind of fruit. It says at the end of verse 6, Since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Now it's important to see that last phrase, in truth. Because some people at this time were receiving this message of grace, but they were twisting it. They were perverting it. They said, now that we have grace, this means we can do whatever we want. That is not how God is, that, that's not the offer that God is making to say, listen, if you believe in me and believe what my son did, then you get to do whatever you want and I'll give you everything you want. That's not how the grace of God works. Uh, look at Jude in verse number four. You'll, you'll see where Jude mentioned it. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. So they turned it into some wicked form of lust. They turned this message into a way that you could get everything you want without any consequences. That is not the way God intended it. And just to finish the verse, denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So they had a very perverted version of grace. Back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, As ye also learned of Epaphras. Now notice the word also. It indicates that Epaphras was not the first one to bring the message to the Colossians. Somebody else told them about the gospel and, and gave them A to Z, everything they need to know. But then Epaphras came in later and further discipled the people, if I can say it that way. He, it's not that Epaphras brought a, a new truth. Epaphras came in and maybe clarified things and helped them get better grounded. This is important in any ministry, right? In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word gets established. So it's real good, and that's why I like to have uh, other preachers come through from time to time. I try to be picky about who comes through, right? I don't want anybody to get up in the pulpit. But it's good for you to hear the same truth, but from a different person. And it, it just solidifies, maybe in your own mind and heart, it's not just my pastor making these things up or saying these things. These things are universally accepted among the body of Christ. Verse 7, As you also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. Now, a fellow servant, you can think of it as, a, some people would translate it, co-slave. So you're serving the same master. It's a like-minded uh, servant our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Notice how faithful pops up again. Epaphras could be counted on 
to be there, to tell the truth, to deliver the message the way it should be said. Now, we're going to talk more about Epaphras when we get to chapter 4. So I'm going to save a lot of comment about his life until we get there because we get more information in chapter 4. In verse 8, he says, "...who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit." Well, the opposite of that would be your love in the flesh, right? And the fellowship that Epaphras and the Colossian church had was not based on anything worldly or fleshly. It was based on their commonality of walking in the Spirit and the things of God. Now, he says that uh, Epaphras declared unto Paul and Timothy their love, their faith, their service. You can put verse 4 and verse 8 together. Now, I wonder if Epaphras came to your house and spent the evening with you, or maybe spent the lockdown with you. Let's use the lockdown for something profitable. If Epaphras spent the lockdown with you, and then after 30 days or however long it's going to be, he heads back to Paul and says, let me tell you about this household I was with. Man, I tell you what, these folks, what would he say? How would he finish delivering that message? In verse number 9, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. So he says, why, do I, why have I been praying for you? Because of this message I got from Epaphras, you guys, man, you're really putting forth some effort. You're laboring, you're serving, you're loving. I, Paul says, I'm so excited to hear that. I've been praying for you guys, and now he's going to tell us what he prays for. And then he says, Do not cease to pray for you, and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So Paul is praying that these people know the will of God. This is one question that I get, I want to say more than any other question from uh, genuine, what can I say, God-loving Christians. I, I, I think the South African way to say it would be big Christians. You know, The question that I get the most is, how do we know the will of God? Paul is praying that these people know it. Now, this isn't a lesson on how to know the will of God. I've taught that in other times, and I would encourage you to seek that, uh, those lessons out if you'd like more information. Let me just give you a couple pointers on it tonight, a couple facts about it. Number one, you do need to know the specific will of God for your life. And that will be different for every, every member of the body of Christ. Paul was an apostle. See, that's his specific calling. But then there's also a general calling. He was also a servant of Christ. You might remember in Titus, we saw that. He called himself a servant and an apostle. So there's the general calling. We're all called to be servants. But then there's the specific some are going to be apostles, some are going to be pastors, some are going to be uh, church members that work faithfully at their job and have good families. There's going to be so many uh, unique details or nuances to your life specifically. And you do need to know what the will of the Lord is. Ephesians 5, I think it's verse 17. Be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. I believe, however, in this verse, Paul is not referring to the specific will of God directly. I believe what he's talking about here, he wants them to know the general will of God. What is God's plan for all Christians? Now, this 
is going to tie into what we're going to study it in Romans 8. Uh, Garrett, when he teaches you Ephesians, you'll see it in Ephesians 1. But when we talk about this predestinated plan of God, before the foundation of the world, God had already chosen not certain people to go to heaven and certain people to go to hell. That's not, God didn't choose that. What God chose was this plan. And He said, anybody that is in Christ, here's what I'm going to do in them, with them, through them, and to them. God already decided that before the foundation of the world. Now, the decision to get in Christ, that's up to you. And you'll see that in Ephesians 1.12. You have to trust Christ in order to get in on, on this system. So there is still, uh, uh, the free will is still operating in this. But God had the plan that if you choose Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit will come in. He will seal you. Right, The earnest of our inheritance is the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will start to work within us and continually bring forth fruit. And that fruit will act as evidence that God is working in us. And that is evidence that we have the Holy Spirit, but it is also evidence that He's not going to stop working until the day of Jesus Christ. So this conforming to God's image, to the to the image of Christ. That work is going to continually be done until the day of the rapture. Not until the day of your death. Right? When you die, how is that being conformed to Christ? That is a corrupt body that's corrupting in the grave. This process is not done until the resurrection takes place. You have a glorified body and you're standing before God in this sinless state. And now you can forever fellowship with Him in that condition, in that glorified body. Paul wants everybody to know that plan and understand every aspect of that plan and how it works. How does the Spirit uh, conform you? How does He rebuke you? How does He bear witness to your spirit? How does He lead you? How do you yield to Him? He wants you to understand all of that. Notice at the end of verse 9, to be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. What I need to know, the, the reason I should say, the reason I need to know this plan and how it works is so that I can apply it to my everyday life. I can apply it to my family, to my job, to my hobbies, to everything that I do, every decision that I make. I have to keep in mind this this. Uh, overall long-term plan that God has for me and it will help me make better decisions. It'll help me judge if I'm going in the right direction. So when he says in all wisdom, that, that speaks to the application. Good, I know the plan of God. I have this knowledge about what the will of God is for, for Christians. But now how should I apply this to my daily life? That's wisdom. Spiritual understanding, if you think about like scientific understanding or mechanical understanding, you know how all the gears and all the parts of that car or that machine works. Spiritual understanding, you understand how this part and this part and this, when it's all put together, it creates something else and how it operates. So Paul wants them to know, to know it in depth. Verse 10, another thing that he's praying about, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all ple pleasing, 
being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Right? There's three parts to this. Part number one, that you may walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. Now, these are broad categories, right? And it would do well if you'd study them out on your own. Uh, but let me try to be brief in my explanations of this. How can we live a worthy life that is pleasing to God? Well, without faith, it's impossible to please Him. So we have to walk by faith and not by sight. This we know, right? We live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. But just, you may not even have to turn the page. Uh, I just have to look to the left. Philippians chapter 3. Look with me at verse number 12. And I want to point out one thing that I believe will help you to live a worthy life that is pleasing to God. Because some people think, to be pleasing to God, I have to perfect everything. I have to stop all sin. I, I cannot mess up. If I have a bad day, then I'm, I'm no, good, no good to God. That is not how it works. Philippians 3 verse 12, Paul says, Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after. Which is another way of saying I don't quit even though I'm, I, I, I haven't perfected everything yet. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. What's he saying? I want to get a hold of the reason Christ got a hold of me. And if I let that slip at some point, I'm going to grab on even tighter. I'm not going to quit. Verse 13, Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. So living a life that is worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing and pleasing to Him, this is a life of faithfulness. The man that keeps pressing towards the mark. No matter how many times he falls short, he picks himself back up by the grace of God. He confesses it and moves on. That's, that's something God-worthy, right? When Jesus gave the parable in Luke 19 about the servants and the pounds, when he judged the servant, he said, How many pounds have you, have you made? He said, Thy pound hath gained ten pounds. What did he say? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Have authority over ten cities. Good and faithful. That's what's pleasing to him. Verse 10, being fruitful in every good work, that simply speaks to taking advantage of all the opportunities we have to do good to others. We talked about this a little bit in Galatians 6, right? Taking advantage of those opportunities. And then at the end of the verse, increasing in the knowledge of God. This is deepening, deepening your relationship with Him, learning more and more about God, which by the way, the only way you can do is to commune with Him, to do things with Him, right? If you want to increase your knowledge about your spouse, you have to talk with them. You have to do things together. You have to experience things together. That's exactly what you need to do if you want to increase in the knowledge of God. You read about Him, then you talk to Him, then you do things with Him, right? Perfect way to fellowship. Verse 11, another thing he's praying about. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and longsuffering with joyfulness. 
Paul knows this part, please. Put, put, put down your phone or whatever else you're looking at or that uh, piece of cake you're eating. Please pay attention to this part. Because when you find people like the Colossians, and I think we have some in our church, love Christ sincerely. Serve Him from the bottom of their heart. They go out of their way to be a blessing to others. And they are willing to spend and be spent to help people for Christ's sake. What will happen is they, they, they run the risk of becoming weary in well-doing. So Paul is praying for these people that they might be strengthened according to His, God's, glorious power. So God, please give them more strength because... When you are on the front lines of a spiritual battle, the pressure, the intensity of that position is something that is difficult to prepare for until you've been there. You can read about it. You can hear people talk about it. You can listen to this lesson tonight and say, yep, I've heard, about, I've heard of that. But until you are on the front lines and feel the fiery darts of the wicked one coming right at you, zinging past your head, it is difficult to appreciate just how much pressure there is involved with serving Christ that passionately, that deeply. Paul knows that they're going to be persecuted, that not everybody, matter of fact, the majority of people are not going to like what they're preaching and what they're doing. So he says, you guys need patience and long-suffering. When you're persecuted, you have to bless them that persecute you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. You're going you're gonna to have to be meek, patient, gentle. And then he says, with joyfulness. So don't just wait it out. But while you're going through these things that require patience, what requires patience? Tribulation worketh patience. Patience experience, experience hope. So as you're going through the tribulations, the persecutions, the problems of life, you not only wait and say, okay, I... God, I'll wait for you to fix it, but you do it joyfully. Say, God, thank you for this opportunity to see you work in my life. For the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. Paul is praying that they experience that entire process. Verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. So this is also part of the prayer. He's thanking God for what God has done in the lives of these people, making them meet to be partakers. So making them fit the requirements for this inheritance. And that is, that is redemption. That is everything that's involved in salvation, reconciliation, sanctification. God has made all of that possible. Meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, the, that inheritance, I believe... It, now, there are several things involved in the inheritance. The, the things that God has laid up for us, the things that God has planned out for us, that's all part of the inheritance. So, it starts with the Holy Spirit coming in and starting to operate in us. And God has made us meet to be partakers of that. How so? He's going to tell us 
in the next couple verses. It, it was made possible through the blood of Christ. But he, he also says something at the end of the verse, partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. There's a couple ways you might understand this. One way to think of it, the inheritance of the saints in light one day, and this is part of our inheritance, we have, we have that new body laid up on the other side. We're going to be standing before God in heaven. We will actually physically stand in the light of God. Now, just quickly, take your Bible, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let me show you a verse that goes with this. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14. Paul says that thou keep this commandment without spot, unrebukable, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in His times He shall show, who is the blessed and only potentate, that's a ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who only hath immortality, which is a great verse on the deity of Christ, who only hath immortality, dwelling in the light, which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see, to whom be honor and power everlasting. Amen." So he's talking about this light that God produces up in heaven. And no man in his natural state can approach unto that or be in that light, right? No man has seen God. No man can see God and live. That is in this body. But we have an inheritance. We have a new body that will enable us to actually dwell in that light. Now, we don't have time to get into all the other verses that would go with that. But, but coming back to Colossians, he says, partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. There's another way to understand that light. And I actually think Paul is meaning it in this other sense. He's talking about a spiritual light. Uh, the Bible says God is light. So when we say there's a comparison in the Bible, often this is used, light and darkness. So light has to do with God and good. Darkness has to do with Satan and evil and sin. So if you look at verse 13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness. So I think there's a contrast here. Paul's talking about the darkness. That's your sinful nature. We've been delivered from that. You can also think of it as delivered from the power of Satan. That would also be a true statement. So delivered from the power of that darkness. But what, what allows us to partake of the light, to partake of this divine, godly nature? Now just make a note here, 2 Peter 1, verse 3 and 4. It talks about partakers of the divine nature. right? And of course, the blood of Christ is what made all that possible. But He's delivered us from the power of darkness. So we have access to this light, this new nature. Now, I'll just give you a couple of verses to look at later. John 1 verse 5, it talks about darkness in reference to the sinful nature. John chapter 3 verses 19 to 21, there we read about how men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil and so forth. And also Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, Paul talks about how uh, the people go from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and you'll also re read about the inheritance in that verse. All right, now verse 13, "...who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of His dear Son." Now, notice the past tense, translated us, past tense. We are already in the kingdom of 
His dear Son, the kingdom of Christ. This cannot be a reference to the millennial kingdom, the physical political kingdom that Jesus will one day establish on the earth. All we have to do is look around and we see that that's not the case. This is a reference to the spiritual kingdom. We are already a part of this spiritual kingdom. That is, the Holy Spirit lives within and can reign in our hearts. So this will connect nicely to Romans chapter 14, verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. All right, we're a part of that kingdom. Thank God for that. Now verse 14, in whom we have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we've mentioned this uh, already tonight a few times, we've talked about it in Galatians, we've talked about it in Romans. So I'm not going to explain how the blood uh, paid the price for sin and offers us forgiveness at the same time. We've already made a distinction that, and you should remember this, especially from Romans chapter 3, that in the Old Testament, sins could be forgiven but not uh, cleared away, not taken away. So in the Old Testament, they had forgiveness from God, but not redemption on an individual basis, right? God redeemed the nation of Israel, brought them out of Egypt. Uh, David speaks about God as his redeemer, but that is uh, getting him out of trouble, uh, persecution and things that were happening. When it comes to individual redemption and sins being paid for, that is found only in Christ. So in the Old Testament, they didn't have access to that. Now, why, why do I point this out? Because in... in a lot of the new Bibles, the new translations of the English Bible, and forgive me, I don't have the 1983 Afrikaans, but I assume that you'll find this problem in that version as well. They take out the phrase, through the blood, or through His blood. They take that out. And when you take that out, you create, a, I want to say, confusion at the least and false doctrine probably at the most. In verse 14, in whom we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. If you read it as it stands in a lot of the new Bibles, you would have to think that forgiveness and redemption is the same thing. Well, in the New Testament, redemption and forgiveness do go together. They're both accessed through the blood of Christ. But redemption and forgiveness are not the same thing. So the, the phrase, through His blood, I understand. I know the arguments behind the textual um, evidence for this, but most of the time they say, "Well, you know, the new Bible simply uh, they 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 use updated language, but all the same truth is there." This one actually affects the teaching. This changes the the, the teaching of Romans three and how you would approach redemption and forgiveness. So I see that as at least noteworthy. All right, verse number fifteen. It says, who is the image of the invisible God? Now, he's, going to, he's moving on now from t talking about how he's prayed for them, and he's going to focus his attention now on the Redeemer himself and talk about Christ. Who is the image of the invisible God? So the only part of God that man has ever seen or can see is Jesus Christ. This does speak loudly to His deity, to the fact that Jesus is God, who is the image of the invisible God. So He's the part of God that can be seen, the firstborn of every creature. Now that phrase raises a few eyebrows. 
because the way some people read it, they, they yank that one part of the verse out and they create doctrines just from one, one phrase. We have to take th that phrase along with all the other comments that the Bible makes about Christ and His deity. So some people take that phrase and say, Jesus was the first thing that God created. So that's why He's called firstborn. Now I understand the term firstborn, it can be very straightforward and mean this is the first child that was born in that family. I, I get it, and it does mean that on many occasions, but not always. The term firstborn can also mean chief or supreme heir, the, the rightful heir to the throne or to the authority over something. And I believe that's the way it's being used here. The firstborn of every creature. That is, Jesus is the chief. He is the rightful heir. He is going to rule over everything. Now, if you take it the other way and say that's the first thing that God made, it doesn't say here that Jesus was the first thing that God made. It said He's the firstborn. Jesus wasn't born until about 4,000 years after creation, right? About 2,000 years ago, He was born. And now we're talking about the incarnation. This verse, if, if you want to talk about firstborn, let me push it a little further. You're almost going to run into a Mormon doctrine because... If you say Jesus was the first thing born, not created, it says born. Well, in order to birth something into existence, you have to have two parties working together. And the Mormon church does teach that Elohim and the Queen of Heaven got together and produced what we know as Jesus, produced a little God. And uh, <clears throat> we're going to study... Mormonism, when we go through our, our cults class, so I'll save all the other information until then. But I believe what Paul's getting at is Jesus is the chief, He is the supreme heir, He is the rightful ruler over everything. Now, now notice verse 16. For, what, why is He the, the chief? Why is He the ruler over everything? For by Him were all things created. Jesus is the Creator. Uh, he says, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. So not just physical things, even the spiritual world Jesus created. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or power, powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. Now these thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers, there is a, an authority structure within the spiritual realm. Just like we have in our governments, right? We have the president and the vice president, and then you have cabinet members, and there's different levels to government. The same thing exists in the spiritual realm. There is an archangel. He's above the rest of the angels. There are cherubim, seraphim, and they all hold different levels of authority within that, within that realm. Now, it says all things were created by Christ. This is a familiar passage, but I'm going to read it with you. John chapter 1. And the reason I'm reading this for you, and with you hopefully, John 1, verse 1, I want, I want us to compare Scripture with Scripture. Because that phrase, the firstborn of every creature, I don't want you to get confused and think, but it kind of sounds like Jesus was the first thing made. 
When you're in doubt of a phrase, look for other passages that offer clear information that will help do away with any doubts as to what was intended. So John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, that should be enough to tell us clearly that Jesus does not have a beginning. Jesus has always been. The same was in the beginning with God. So when the beginning began, Jesus was there. He began the beginning. I hope you follow that. Verse 3, all things were made by Him. Even the beginning was made by Him. Say, so what's the beginning? The beginning of time. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The beginning of what we know as the universe. Before all of that, God was there. Who was with him? The Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God, which can only be understood in the sense of, of the Trinity as it's been revealed to us. Verse 3, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. If John, you can see the detail that he's giving here. If Jesus had been made by the Father, John would have been careful to point that out. There are other places in the Bible where it does mention exceptions. Paul did it in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, all things are under Christ. When we say all things, of course, the Father is accepted. And he, he makes that clear. But there's no exception made. All things were made by Christ. All, meaning all. Uh, I want to show you one more verse. Get Psalm 89. Psalm 89, verse 27. And this is a good cross-reference. For the use of the word firstborn. In Psalm 89, we're reading about David. You can see this, just we're not going to read all the verses, but verse 20, Psalm 89, 20, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. And come on down to verse 27. Also I will make him, David, my firstborn. Well, how do you make him your firstborn? I'm going to make him the chief ruler over this nation. I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. So David's authority will be higher than the other kings in the earth. This is that now. This gets deep. David is coming back in the resurrection and he is going to be, listen to this, king of Israel in the millennium. See, I thought that was Jesus. Jesus is king of kings. He's the king of all the kings. So he's, he's, he is the chief, but then there's a king over Israel. There will be a king over South Africa, be a king over America, you know, th that type of setup. God said, verse 27, I'll make him my firstborn. Uh, so chief ruler, higher than the kings of the earth. Verse 28, my mercy will I keep for him forevermore. My covenant shall stand fast with him. His seed, David's seed, who's that? That's the Messiah. His seed also will I make to endure forever. So the Messiah is an eternal being. In His throne as the days of heaven will go on and on. All right, come back to Colossians 1 now. In verse 16, at the end of the verse, all things were created by Him and for Him. Verse 17, and He is before all things. And by Him all things consist. So Jesus is the beginning of everything. Where did everything begin? It began with Jesus. He is the one that was responsible for creating everything. 
And the reason things are still holding together and operating, they consist, right? They work because Jesus told it to work. He gave it an operating system. He fed information into the natural world, into the spiritual world, and said, this is the structure by which you will exist. And the reason things still consist, this speaks to the fine-tuning argument for the, for the universe. The reason things are so finely tuned is because the Word, who is God, set it all up brilliantly. Uh, I want to compare what we've read in Colossians. Come to Hebrews chapter 1. You've got to read Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 3, you're going to see how it lines up almost perfectly with what we've just read. Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. The Bible says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son, watch it now, whom He hath appointed heir of all things. What's another way to say that? firstborn of every creature. He is going to be the heir. He is the rightful ruler. He's going to ascend to that position of ruling the entire, I say ascend, not everything is in subjection to him. So let, let me get my wording right. He is already the rightful ruler, but not everything is subjected to him yet because we haven't reached eternity. But let's keep going. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. That lines up with Colossians. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. So when God wants to express himself, how does he do it? He comes down in the form of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the part of God that can be seen. This lines up with what we've seen, the image of the invisible God. Keep reading. Verse 3, the express image of His person and up upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. We're going to read about Jesus purging our sins in Colossians 1. But notice, upholding all things by the word of His power, by Him all things consist. It consists because He told it to consist. He told it to stick together. So, let me make it practical for just a moment. If you want your life to hold together, if you want to prevent things from falling apart, then you need to order your life according to the Word of Christ. All things are upheld. They consist. They work properly because of His Word. You try to do something contrary to the Word, it's going to fall apart. What did Jesus say at the end of Matthew 7? If a man hears my Word and doesn't do it, he's building his house upon sand and it's going to fall and great will be the fall of it. Why does it not consist? Because you don't build it on His Word. All right, verse 18. We'll finish up in verse 18. And He is the head of the body. Now notice in verse 15, firstborn, Verse 18, head of the body, chief, supreme. So the context does bear witness to, what we've, uh, to, to the way that I've explained it to you. And he is the head of the body, the church. Now this is something we cover in discipleship. Body, the body of Christ is the universal church. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, Jesus. When you look at where did all the creatures come from, spiritual and physical, they came from Jesus. Where did the church come from? It came from Jesus. Why? He was the first one to rise from the dead. And that is, that is why we have a lively hope. He rose from the dead. He's able to give us life. So he has earned that position of chief ruler, head of the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So he was the first one to rise up from the dead, firstborn from the dead. And because of that, we, he gets uh, priority in everything we do. He, be, he gets the preeminence in everything. So eminent, we think of things that are very important. Preeminence, before anything that's important, Jesus is important which I think is an excellent place to stop the lesson for tonight. I had hoped to, to get all the way through the chapter, but there's too many good things in here, so I'm not going to rush it. Sorry. My wife just reminded me about the attendance code, so I'm glad she did. So before we pray, I'll give you the attendance code. It's Revelation 3, verse 14. Revelation 3, verse 14. It's wonderful to have a faithful wife, amen, <laughs> to help you out. All right, uh, the comments, I haven't seen any come through in a while, so I think that part of it also stopped. I'm not sure. Guys, I'm so sorry if the technology doesn't work right. I'm doing the best I can with, with what I have and with what I know. <laughs> I'm not great at it, but at least we're able to do this much. So bow your heads with me and um, let's pray. Father, thank you for the privilege tonight to talk about you and your son. Lord, there's so many things that still can be said, need to be said. Father, might I pray, much like Paul did for, for the Colossians, can I pray it the same way for my church? Lord, you get the preeminence in the church. You've called me to, to, to oversee the flock, but Lord, you're the chief shepherd, the firstborn. Lord, I look to you for help and guidance, and I want to ask you to help this church, to help these people that have been listening tonight. Give them a deeper understanding of your plan. Give them the strength they need to make it through the next day. Give them, Lord, the, the, the zeal and the grace to increase in their knowledge of you and joyfulness and to live a life that's worthy of you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for making all of this possible, for making us meet to be partakers of this divine nature. Help us, Lord, to do a better job of walking in the Spirit. Thank you for the time tonight. Please have your hand upon us, God, as we continue through this week, through this lockdown. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.